This is Pandemic Planet, the podcast where we talk about the urgent health security threats facing the world, the geopolitical and societal challenges they present, and how the United States can best lead health security efforts abroad while protecting Americans at home. Pandemic Planet is the podcast series of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. While our sister podcast series, Coronavirus Crisis Update, focuses on what's happening in America, here on Pandemic Planet, we'll look at the global and geopolitical effects of health security threats. Welcome to Pandemic Planet. Hello, and welcome to a new episode of Pandemic Planet. I'm Catherine Bliss, a senior fellow at CSIS, and I'm joined today by Dr. Julie Morita, Executive Vice President of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. A pediatrician by training, Julie served as an epidemiology intelligence officer at the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and has led work at the Chicago Department of Health as medical director, chief medical officer, and then commissioner. She has been a member of the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices and recently served on the Biden-Harris administration's COVID-19 Transition Task Force. Today, we'll discuss what the COVID-19 pandemic has revealed about health disparities in the United States, the challenge of promoting demand for COVID-19 vaccines while ensuring their equitable distribution, and the long-term implications of the stresses of the pandemic on people's trust in healthcare providers and the health system in the United States. So Julie, welcome to Pandemic Planet. Hi, Catherine. Thanks so much for having me. So it's been 15 months or so since the World Health Organization declared the COVID-19 outbreak to be a global pandemic. Here in the United States and around the world, we've seen that we're not just dealing with a biological virus, but we're also dealing with how people perceive and behave alone and with each other in response to the threat of a virus. Domestically, we've had national debates upon debates about masks and social distancing, sure, but I mean, it's more than that, right? The pandemic precautions have really forced us to look at our social interactions and social expectations in new and different ways. But I think this is not really new to you. These are issues you've worked on for a while in Chicago through the Healthy Chicago 2.0 plan and through the foundation's work rooted in the culture of health. So I wanted to start out by asking you to explain what a culture of health means or should mean, what it should look like and how you see cultural approaches to health have shaped our own experience of the pandemic here in the United States. The culture of health is something that the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation started talking about and really envisioned about 12 years ago. We really started talking about what the culture of health was, and and that means a lot of things to a lot of different people. But what it means to the foundation is actually envisioning a place where everyone has an opportunity to live a healthy life, and everyone has a fair and just opportunity to live a healthy life and to have well-being. And that we also talk about the culture of health being inextricably linked to health equity, and that we really can't build a culture of health unless we've achieved an advanced health equity, which means that obstacles to health and well-being are eliminated, like things including discrimination, lack of access to good jobs and fair pay, lack of access to high-quality education, those kinds of things are critical to really building this culture of health. And and so that's the vision that the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation has developed and has really cultivated and promoted over the past few years. 
in my experience in Chicago, we actually used the culture of health as a goal. And we developed our Healthy Chicago 2.0 plan based on a lot of the resources and materials the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation created to help guide our efforts to build this culture of health within the city of Chicago. So, you know, the COVID crisis, as you've said, I mean, focusing on this idea of culture of health, I mean, what we've seen, particularly over the last year and a half, I mean, the, the crisis here has really exposed these deep social inequities in our country, inequalities in our country. And, you know, by now it should be, you know, I think very clear to everyone that where you live and where you go significantly shapes your experience, not just of daily life, but of a broadly circulating virus. And, and it's not necessarily because of the topography, it's because of, of the social interactions and historic relationships. And now last March, you know, some people in the United States were very quickly able to shift to remote work and protect themselves, while others lost their jobs or had hours cut back, so took on additional frontline work as drivers or delivery people to make ends meet. And then with schools moving to the distance learning model, we saw a lot of parents, especially moms, leaving the workforce to care for children at home as well. And so when you think about health equity, vulnerability to disease and access to primary health care and immunization services, what did you see as the biggest challenges before the COVID crisis and how have they diminished or gotten worse during the pandemic? So I think the, the isolation and the separation that we've all had from family, friends, colleagues over the pandemic for the past 15 months, as you say, has really allowed us some time to really think deeply about who gets sick, who dies, who gets hospitalized when we have public health emergencies. And when we look back at the past 15 months, we can see there were certain groups who were disproportionately impacted by the pandemic. We saw our communities of color and our low income communities really hit hard by the pandemic with higher rates of disease, higher rates of hospitalization. And then what I saw happen was critical was that we actually started acknowledging why it was that these groups were actually disproportionately impacted. We didn't just say, oh, these are the groups that are disproportionately impacted, let's, let's take care of them. We started talking about these other factors that really led to this disproportionate impact. So as you pointed out, lack of good housing, safe housing, lack of affordable housing, lack of good nutrition, lack of access to a good job with fair pay, inability to take off time, having sick time or paid leave, all these things contributed to why individuals were more likely to get sick at hospitalized and to die. And so that's a real success for us to be able to talk about that and acknowledge these structural inequities leading to poorer health outcomes. And when I think back about my career in public health, in the 20 years that I was in the city of Chicago, we saw many public health emergencies. We saw H1N1 over 10 years ago. We saw Zika. We saw Ebola. And during these public health emergencies, in many cases, it was there was disproportionate impact. It was our communities of color and our low-income communities who just really struggled and were really more likely to get sick and to die. And so often we rushed to do a public health intervention to address that particular issue, but we really didn't step back and look at the root causes. What we learned from H1N1 was quite remarkable, that when we tried to reach our communities of color with the H1N1 vaccine, we didn't do a great job in Chicago. After we realized that people weren't turning out for vaccine, we then started working with community organizations and faith organizations and said, can you work with us to help bring the communities to the vaccines and make sure that they get vaccinated as well? And we had mild and moderate success. But at the health department, we learned from that experience and recognized that you can't really establish these kind of trusting relationships with community, with faith organizations, with the communities at large in the times of a crisis. 
what we needed to do was really establish these relationships and work with these community groups to actually establish the trust in times of calm when there wasn't a pandemic. And so Healthy Chicago 2.0, which was a public health plan that we released in 2016, actually engaged with community to build the plan and also to implement the plan. And many of the public health measures and interventions that the city implemented during COVID were actually built upon some of these relationships that were established as a result of Healthy Chicago 2.0, which were influenced and informed by what we learned with H1N1. So, you know, you've really talked about you know, the relevance of taking the long view to preparedness and developing those relationships with communities in order to have an effective response in a moment of crisis. And also just the importance that here in the U.S. we've begun to talk about some of the reasons behind the disparities, not just acknowledging them, but, you know, really looking back and understanding how some of this came to be and beginning to chart a path forward. How do you see things developing as we begin to look hopefully ahead to an end to this acute phase of the pandemic? And do you think that as a country, we'll be able to keep these lessons with us as we look ahead? Or is there more work to be done to keep on track at this point? So I have hope that we'll do better this time around. I've experienced a number of public health emergencies where we recognize that certain groups were disproportionately impacted and we would get surges of funding from the federal government to state and local public health to address public health issues. And then over time, the funding would go away and we weren't able to sustain the efforts. And then the next emergency would arise and then we would actually have additional funding. And, And you can't really establish a strong public health infrastructure, establish the kinds of relationships you need to with communities over the long term uh, with these peaks and valleys of funding. And I have hope that there actually will be more sustained support for public health because of some of the things that are happening with the current administration. I had great hope when I was asked to sit on the Transition Team's Advisory Task Force because when we were engaged, the members on the task force were engaged, we were asked to really lead with science but also to prioritize equity. And I'd never heard that before and and was so incredibly inspired by those kinds of priorities. And then I was really excited to see that these priorities reflected in the plan that was released the day after the inauguration, the COVID response plan, which was released after inauguration. And then also in the rescue plan, the American Rescue Plan Act actually includes many provisions that acknowledge the importance of economic supports, tax credits, nutrition supports, public health infrastructure funding, caregiving, things that we haven't really talked about or linked to health in the past are now being lifted up and linked to a public health emergency and the need for these kinds of supports. Now, some of these supports are short-term and they end in a few months or at the end of the year. And I think that what we'd like to see is these kinds of supports continued and sustained for the long haul because there's lots of public health crises that are happening on a daily basis before the pandemic, like obesity, the opioid epidemic. And if we address these kinds of systemic barriers to health now and sustain them, we'll also address these ongoing chronic public health issues as well. So really important to consider the entire social world in which someone is experiencing you know, a health issue, yes, but connected to so many more of the social determinants and ways to address that, you know, maybe through, as you've said, tax credits or nutrition inputs or housing vouchers or different kinds of forms of support. But what everybody is talking about right now, whether you walk through the market or the grocery store or run into someone on the street is the vaccine. 
have you had it? Have you not? Everybody is talking about numbers and the latest news. And, you know, here in the United States, we've successfully vaccinated around 130 million people with all adults and children over the age of 12 eligible for free vaccine. And of course, you know, there are some people who've only had one dose. So, you know, I think those numbers are even higher. President Biden has framed getting the COVID-19 vaccine as a collective responsibility, almost as a patriotic duty, you know, but there's still a good number of people who say they will not get a vaccine for various reasons, maybe 13% who say definitely not, another 24% who are kind of in the wait and see or only if required category. And we know there's a political divide, a rural urban divide and some division according to gender, whether or not someone graduated from college, you know, race, all a number of different issues really play into people's perspectives on when and, and how they want to get a vaccine. And there's a fair amount of uncertainty too, right? Some people just are unsure if they're eligible or what kind of documentation might be required where they can get a vaccine and think they might have to pay for it. And we know these perspectives shape how parents think about having their children vaccinated too. You mentioned the serving on the Biden-Harris Transition Teams Task Force on COVID-19 and, you know, that you all were, were really looking at so many different issues, trying to untangle these challenges around delivering vaccines and in the larger context of people's social lives. But I wanted to ask, you know, and you mentioned this around some of the work that you had done in Chicago with H1N1 flu. What do you see beyond that city, you know, kind of across the United States as the greatest drivers of vaccine hesitancy here? And while we think about the longer term importance of having developing those trusting relationships and, and really you know, encouraging people to understand the science and develop a trusting relationship with, with the vaccinators, what do you see as the most effective ways? You know, we've seen promises of lottery tickets and free beers and all these things. You know, is that the way to go? Or what are some of the, the more sustainable solutions? So vaccines are something I've thought about for my almost my entire life. I feel like definitely through my entire career, because as a pediatrician, vaccines are just a core and fundamental thing that I learned about and was educated about and, and really had to promote. And I have a lot of confidence in the vaccine system within the United States. We have so many vaccines that we give to children in their first few years of lives. And the recommendations have resulted in an implementation of the program have really resulted in elimination of diseases, eradication of polio, near elimination of measles. So we've had huge successes because of the strong immunization program we have in place. And as a general pediatrician, when I was in practice in Arizona, I can remember talking to parents who had questions and concerns about the vaccine, who were refusing to get their children vaccinated. And I made the mistake initially of asking those patients to go someplace else because I thought, oh, I feel so strongly the vaccines are critical to keeping people healthy and, and the community, in addition to the individuals. I would ask them to go someplace else and say, I can't really take care of you. And what I learned over time that that was actually a really a mistake because when you do that, you allow them to find a provider who's willing to not vaccinate them or engage them and put them in conversations. And what I learned to do over time was really to spend more time with my patients and really understand and listen to them and hear what questions they had and concerns they had, because they often were rejecting all vaccines. They might have a question or concern about one or two of the vaccines, and I could actually work with them to get the other vaccines. And over time, I'd actually convince them to get the vaccines that they were hesitant about to begin with. And so really working with them and establishing that trusting relationship, it's not something that happens overnight. And you have to spend the time to do that. And I actually think that that's the solution for what we're facing right now, because when you look back at what happened with the pandemic a year ago, having 
uh, nearly 50% of our population vaccinated with at least one dose of the vaccine would have been beyond my imagination because I thought there's no way we're going to have a vaccine available in the supply that would allow us to be this well covered. And though we have a lot of room to improve in terms of vaccine coverage levels, we have vaccines in unprecedented speed. And so that's going to take some time to build people's confidence and trust in the vaccine itself. And so a lot of what I'm seeing across the nation is really efforts at the ground level to really engage with communities, to help listen to the communities, hear what their questions are and what their concerns are, and then find out who they want to hear the information from, because it's not just getting the information to people, but really understanding who they want to hear it from because a public health official from the government might not be the best spokesperson for a vaccine, but it might be the pediatrician in the office or the internal medicine physician in the office or a community leader who steps up and says, I got vaccinated and I did well, and I, I think you should do this as well. But I think it's really working with the community, listening to the community and hearing what they need to know and who they want to hear it from. And when I look at Across the nation, you can see there still are some significant disparities in terms of communities of color getting vaccinated, not getting vaccinated as well as our white population, but also some conservative populations and some evangelical populations that are also hesitant and don't want to get the vaccines. But the approach really isn't different. It's really with health, public health officials, healthcare providers, engaging with the community groups, engaging with the community and listening and providing the information that they need to be able to make informed decisions and to have confidence and faith in the vaccines themselves. And I'm a firm believer in that approach. And I see what's happening in Chicago because they've built on these trusting relationships that we established with Healthy Chicago 2.0 to do their case management, their contact tracing, in addition to their vaccine education and promotion. And their vaccine coverage levels among communities of color are increasing. This kind of approach can actually work. It's that, but it's also making sure the vaccine is really accessible to everyone, making sure there's after-hour clinics, weekend clinics, that you can walk in and get the vaccine. So you don't have these barriers to people who can't take time off of work, who, who have to work on the weekends, who might not have a car to drive up to a drive-through vaccine clinic. So all these things have to be taken in consideration, but they're not insurmountable. And, and we can do this. And there's resources flowing from the government to actually get this done. So I'm hopeful that we'll be able to do better. So a few months ago, there were all these mass vaccination sites set up at stadiums and convention centers and the drive-through, you know, kinds of situations. But I know some of those have begun to shut down or at least to get smaller. And there's been an emphasis on developing these kind of pop-up clinics that will be in a neighborhood for a few days or for a period of time and then somewhere else. And then many more primary care Physicians are also have them available to give. And do you think that's going to make a difference in terms of you know people feeling like they can at least know someone at the community level who's involved in the pop-up clinic or being able to go to their own doctor rather than driving through some place where the last time they were there, they saw a rock concert or something? Will that make a difference, you think? Having a variety of places to get your vaccine is really essential because I think not one solution won't meet all people's needs. And I think it is critical to have these kind of mass clinics work for some people. Going to a pharmacy works for other people. When we think about rolling out this program now to 12 to 15 year olds, and then hopefully in the fall or early next year, we'll have vaccine available for even younger children. I think then relying on healthcare providers, pediatricians, family practice doctors, the usual source of care for children, that's where parents want their children to be vaccinated. And I think it's really important for us to get the vaccines into those clinic settings where the parents and the children have trusted relationships with their healthcare providers. And the providers themselves have a long 
track record of giving vaccines and educating about vaccines. And so they can do this and they can do this quite well. So I really think it requires some nimbleness on the part of the vaccine programming to really say in the beginning, maybe we need mass vaccinations and pop-ups for what we're really working and what were necessary. But now that we're looking at pediatric populations, we should shift our focus and really make sure that we're using these other kinds of venues to get the vaccines to the right people. So, you know, a year plus into the pandemic now, Finally, you know, we've got the vaccine rollout. We're seeing diminishing case numbers here in the United States, a decline in the number of deaths per day. Um, there are really glimmers of hope that things are starting to open up and schools are making plans to be open in the fall. And I think just today, New York announced it would mostly phase out distance learning for the 2021-2022 year. So things are really changing. But at the same time, you know, people remain pretty cautious and, and on edge and the job market has not fully bounced back. A lot of smaller retail and commercial operations are closed, you know, perhaps indefinitely. And to some extent, you know, it seems like people's faith in, in science and the health system has been quite shaken. And so I wanted to ask, you know, what you see as the kind of the longer term implications of the stresses of the pandemic on people's trust in the system. And what will it take to restore trust and build understanding in particular about science and we sort of all spent this period seeing science in action. You know, we think one thing one day, but then we get more information and now we think something different. And how can we help the broader understanding that science is often built on uncertainty? How do we deal with stress and build back sort of an understanding of how the health system can function? Yeah, it's really interesting. To look. There's been a numerous polls that have been done throughout the pandemic, whether it was about people's interest in getting vaccines or what their confidence was in healthcare providers or confidence in the public health system. Most recently, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, NPR, and Harvard released some survey results where we asked people about their feelings about public health in general. And it was interesting because there was a drop in confidence in the public health system itself. And so we saw that CDC, FDA, NIH, the federal agencies really had a drop off in their public confidence. We also saw that it play out for state and local public health as well. But when we look at healthcare providers and healthcare systems, confidence was much higher in healthcare providers. People have had a lot of confidence and faith in healthcare systems and healthcare providers in general. And through the pandemic, I think we've looked at heroes, our medical heroes who actually really took care of people who were sick and dying and did an incredible job doing that. So people still have confidence in their healthcare providers. But the public health system really has suffered a hit in terms of confidence. But what was interesting with our Harvard NPR poll was that even though people have lost confidence in these systems, they also feel strongly that public health systems are important and the federal government should be funding them and providing them resources to build back. And so I think it's really critical. This is a good opportunity. And, and there's great support for what the current administration has been proposing in terms of additional resources going to the public health to really shore it up. But dollars alone aren't going to build back the confidence in the public from a public perspective. Just because public health systems have dollars does not mean that we're going to be more confident in their ability to, to serve us and protect our health. And I think that's on the public health system right now to really do a good job clearly and consistently communicating and engaging with the public. I think last year in 2020, we didn't see public health leading. CDC was rarely in the spotlight talking about public health prevention measures and what the latest guidance was. It wasn't CDC that was leading. And when I look back at the prior public health emergencies, Ebola, Zika, H1N1, 
it was always CDC that was leading, giving governmental public health agencies at the state and local level the guidance that we needed to do case investigations, to do vaccination strategies, that kind of thing. And also engaging with the public through media to share the latest messages. And they really didn't do that that much in 2020, but are much more prominent now in doing that kind of communication. And that will help to restore faith in them. The other thing that needs to happen, I think, is also setting expectations so that people understand that when we have an emerging disease, guidance and information and strategies may change over time. That it's not because there's a flip-flop just for capricious reasons. It's because the evidence and the science have evolved to inform the change of recommendations. And we've seen that with mask wearing. We've seen it with school distancing and, and recommendations within the school settings. And the changes that are being made are just a reflection of the CDC and public health agencies using the best available science and then modifying the recommendations to accommodate that. But we have to share that and set that expectation with the public. So when there is a change in recommendations, it's not because there was a mistake that was made as much as there's more information that's really informing a strategy as we move forward. So it's partially setting the expectations for how public health guidance and recommendations and strategies work, and then also being clear and consistent and engaging broadly so that people can see what the recommendations are and then have confidence in them being based on science and that also that they'll be kept abreast if there's a need for change as well. So really helping people understand where they can get information, how information is developed and how it might change and that that's something to be expected and they can relax. <laughs> it's okay that that's something that will happen. Well, you know, our experience of the pandemic has shown us, I think, that thinking about health in terms of domestic versus global health, you know, with the idea that there's some kind of divide, you know, isn't all that helpful because people are interconnected through trade and travel, migration, linguistic and cultural affinities, education, you know, all these different ways. And we also know that social media messages, including those about vaccines and COVID-19, circulate through international networks as well. And there's a great deal of, of interconnectivity around the world uh, with respect to, to this current outbreak. You know, here in the U.S., we have an abundant supply of safe and effective vaccines against COVID-19, and we're likely to have many millions more than we'll be able to use by the end of the year. And other countries, other high-income countries in particular, certainly have surplus as well, while there are lower and lower middle-income countries that haven't yet really been able to secure enough for their populations. If they're relying on supplies through COVAX, you know, the joint facility through the ACT Accelerator, they may be waiting a while, at least until Serum Institute of India is able to export large quantities again. Now, the United States has committed to donate 80 plus you know, million doses and other countries have committed doses as well. But my question is, is this enough given the domestic situation should the U.S. be doing more internationally? And, and what do you see the risk to the United States and, and globally if the lower middle income countries don't get enough vaccine this year? Yeah, so in public health, we often talk about diseases have knowing no boundaries. But basically, when I was at the city health department in Chicago, we worked really closely with the county health department, which was the county surrounding us. We worked very closely with the state of Illinois health department. We worked with all the states that were around us just because we knew that just because we had an outbreak in one community, it would not take much for the disease to spread into the other communities. And we were all dependent on each other. And so there really was a need for us to coordinate among ourselves. We also relied on CDC to help us to coordinate at a national level 
for these national outbreaks as well. And the nice thing too, when we engaged with CDC, they were often engaging with the WHO and with PAHO as well to make sure that there was coordination of activity. And so when I think about the importance of working globally, the health and well-being of the United States is dependent on the health and well-being of the rest of the world. And so for selfish reasons alone, the United States should be engaging with the global world in terms of ensuring that they have the supplies and resources they need to be combating this pandemic as well, and that they're as well able to vaccinate as we have been able to um, in the United States. And so I, I feel there's a huge responsibility that we as the United States have to the rest of the world for our own good, but for the sake of the world as well. Julie Marita, Executive Vice President of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Thank you for joining me today to talk about health disparities in the United States, the implication of pandemic stresses for people's trust in the public health system, and steps that can be taken to strengthen vaccine confidence in the United States and work overseas. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 